welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. <laughs> this is Dimitri Alperovich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator at Geopolitics Think Tank in Washington, D.C. Today I'm back with Mike Kaufman, who has just returned from a trip in Ukraine, where he spent time on the front lines as, as well as in Kiev talking to senior officials. So, Mike, what is your overall impression of where the war is right now, particularly having, having just returned from, from there? Honestly, it's exactly the same as what it was before I went to Ukraine, which is that Ukraine is winning from the looks of it. The morale is very high on the Ukrainian side. Uh, the overall military balance, I think, tends to favor Ukraine, but that hinges heavily on sustainability of external support. Ukrainians very clearly know it and appreciate it as well. And a lot of that depends on both the material sustainability of support, the weapons and ammunition they get, but also policies associated with it, right? The, con the continuation of, of the support. I think that uh, I've gained a stronger appreciation that uh, the fighting's quite challenging uh, at the stage in Kherson that Ukrainians are making incremental gains and are getting better position in the, in the fight in Luhansk. And uh, they're able to steadily reverse gains made by Wagner and Bakhmut, the sort of kind of offensive to nowhere that Wagner has been pursuing for quite some time. But talking bigger picture, uh, I think in some ways I substantiate my concerns that mobilization has introduced considerable uncertainty and to the medium to long term, and that it could extend the war. And I think those concerns are shared in Ukraine. I, I think there's a somewhat different picture of mobilization's implications that one gets in private versus the public discourse of the subject. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. And, and the, I, the Ukrainians are more concerned about it that they may lay, let on publicly. I think anyone that understands what's going on is more concerned about it than, than often is let on. And, you know, to be frank, one thing you learn by going to Ukraine is there isn't really a the Ukrainians in a sense that different people have different views. Different people in the military have different views on the situation, depending on their visibility. Uh, different people in the political establishment have different views. So, like in any establishment, there, there's a host of opinions on the situation and how people read the future and how people interpret the uncertainty, right? Now, I'm not being evasive, I'm just being frank. Like there isn't a the Ukrainians in the sense. There are, there are different views and that's, that's the value of going to the actual place is to, is to gain insights and to talk to people and to try to both see the, we'll see some of the things they really can't see from a distance, which is the situation on the Ukrainian side, but also gain benefit from their perspective. Now, the Kherson offensive that you mentioned has been going on now for three months, started in early August. And initially, uh, the Ukrainians have, hadn't made much progress. But after the fall of the Kharkiv front, it seems like there was some traction and they started gaining ground. But things look pretty static again uh, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, what do you make of that? Are the Russians putting up a real fight down there? Right. So I, I think in earnest, it's, it's been going on for about two months, and, and I think my impression is that it will go on. And my general sense is that I think uh, some folks are optimistic that they'll be able to take her son by the end of the year. I think the situation on the Russian side is very much subject to the fog of war. There are different ways you can interpret the situation on the ground there. On the one hand, it seems that Russia has been withdrawing some of its forces, some of its equipment, uh, civilians, and what have you. And that may give the impression that Russia is, is steadily abandoning its foothold in Kherson. On the other hand, it seems to have deployed mobilized personnel and has, to some extent, reinforced parts of the line. And yes, it's been relatively static, and I think the fighting there is quite heavy, especially on Tillier's side. It's Russia, despite the difficulty of supplying its forces on the right side of the riverbank, given the many bridges have been damaged, given the situation with sustained Ukrainian HIMARS strikes, I mean, they still have ammunition for fire to some extent, and that's pretty visible out there. Um, my general sense of it is that 
I I suspect that the the likelihood that Russia will be forced to withdraw from her son is not an if but a when. Okay, I th- I think that's probably the sense on the Ukrainian side too. I'm not sure necessarily that they're abandoning. I'm skeptical that they're giving Kherson up without a fight. However, I also don't think they're going to allow it to happen in Kherson what happened at Azum or at Liman even. That is, that the Russian, I think the Russian military, if they're going to withdraw, then they're going to draw down on their terms and retrograde from that uh, part of the front. Do you, do you buy, and is it even possible to ascertain this, that... They've pulled out some of their best forces out of Kherson, but they left the LNR and DNR and maybe some of the mobilized uh, folks that they just brought to the line. And yes, they have troops there, but they're not necessarily great troops. Uh, I think that's possible. I think that the, the evidence you would then have to see is whether or not Ukrainians are making considerable gains. So far, that's not been the case, but Ukraine to some extent is trying to, I think, fight Kherson as uh, an alternate, basically alternating between attrition, whittling down Russian forces and then making a push, then resetting the line, whittling them down again and making a push. They're essentially doing to the Russian military what the Russian military was doing to the Ukrainian armed forces in May and June. Uh, Because they, to some extent, have, if not parity, perhaps even superiority in artillery. They have an asymmetric qualitative advantage because they are able to use long-range precision rounds of various types. And, of course, they have interior lines of communication, and they're not, you know, on the battlefield or crossover. Although there are rivers, like the Unhulets, which bisect the battlefield, that make some ground lines of communications not so easy. Um, and beyond that, I'd say that probably the Russian military is engaged in exchange and force posture and a rotation. And in the coming weeks, it'll be clear whether or not they're really planning a withdrawal or if they intend to fight for some parts of Kyrgyzstan and they're simply more downsizing their footprint. Like I said, and just to be frank, I'm not a on it. I just, I don't know. And this is probably where the fog of war is thickest on the battlefield in terms of what's happening on the Russian side. Many people may not appreciate, but it's still a pretty huge front line in her song. Yeah. It is a huge oblast, and uh, it would make sense for them to try to consolidate some of that front line if they don't have enough force to keep it all. Right. And there's, you know, the northern part of the foothold that they have, north of Makakovka. Uh, there's the southern part and Kyrgyzstan, the city itself, right, which is on the right side of the riverbank. Um, and, you know, there's also some considerations, debates, whether or not, uh, Russian military might pull back. And the next question is, well, what after that? So Ukraine makes major gains, but uh, but there are also challenges that emerge from it. So on the one hand, if Ukrainian military is able to control their entire side of the Dnieper River, they might be able to range from that the ground lines of communication coming out of Crimea. On the other hand, the Russian... With, for- with something like HIMARS. Yeah, exactly, with something like HIMARS. On the other hand, the Russian forces are able to relatively successfully retrograde steadily. Let's say they are withdrawing, and that could well be the case. In other words, they're being pressured to do so, right? Because, by the way, um, not splitting hairs, but it's, but, but it's an important difference between abandoning something because you choose to and being pressed out of a position by force, right? And that's why I don't like the term abandonment. You know, I don't think Russians are abandoning Kherson because they just don't want it anymore, Right? Whereas they're, they're, they are perhaps, if they're withdrawing or retrograding, it's for a reason. Um, well, logistics are becoming more and more difficult, right? I'm curious because you were on the front lines there before we started recording. You were showing me some of the bro- videos of artillery strikes. And do you feel like the artillery battle is now a much lower intensity than it used to be in the summer and, and spring? So I'll, I'll say this. I won't say I was on the front lines. I won't say exactly where I was, but... Um, uh, and, but, but, but it, it was a field research trip, and, and I learned quite a bit from it. So my impression is, and I have nothing to compare this to because it's not like I'd done this kind of trip before in Ukraine, but my impression is that the Russian military in Kherson still has ammunition for artillery fire, both tube artillery and MLRS. 
And that the notion I, I, I had heard sometimes uttered, you know, because of HIMARS, they basically now don't have any ammunition. Um, I, I don't believe this to be true. Uh, regarding what we were discussing earlier, I, th I think the question is, well, what follows Kherson on that front? And then uh, the Russian military would then have the Dnieper River as a sort of rather natural barrier, and they could consolidate in Kherson's upper Asia. And uh, it, it, has, it gives the Ukrainian military, military and strategic advantages on the one hand, but it likely makes the next part of the battle to liberate Ukrainian territory quite harder. So as we're recording this today on Halloween, uh, October uh, 31st, uh, we had Putin come out today and say that mobilization is over. Um, uh, he was actually asked the question if he was going to sign a law officially proclaiming that it's over. He said he will consult with lawyers on that front, but uh, he said it's practically over, that they've mobilized 300,000, 40,000 already in combat roles in the in the. Um, uh, in the fight in Ukraine, and others are between training and, and logistics, um, but um, he expects more to be sent to the front. Do you think that some of those forces are starting to make a difference, and how concerned are the Ukrainians about the mobilization, you think? So, I think Russian military actually mobilized quite a sizable number of personnel. And at first, I was a bit skeptical, given everything we've seen of how it's going, we can talk about their quality and how they're equipped, and it's clearly very a huge range, right? And all the anecdotal evidence is negative. It's going to be negative because you're going to see the videos of people complaining and the problems, right? Um, for a reason. That's kind of the way it works. But uh, there's clear that there's a whole list of challenges with Russian mobilization effort, but they also visibly seem to have the quantity that they, they were looking to get. So my impression is that they did deploy thousands of personnel to the front lines. They are trying to stabilize the lines that way. I think the proof will be in whether or not they're able to withstand uh, Ukrainian offensive operations, particularly in Svatova coming up in, in Luhansk, which is, it's looking like Ukraine is making a steady push there. And in Kherson, yeah, to some extent, it looks like they deployed mobilized personnel, and maybe they're going to try to sustain an attritional battle while preserving their better force and withdrawing those. We'll see. But the bigger question is, will this mobilization achieve for us three, four months from now? Not now. It's to me a more significant question. And that is very much up for debate. That's something you have to wait to see. You mean, will it give them the option to go on the counteroffensive versus just trying to hold the line, right? Uh, that's one concern, I think, certainly, that, that Russia may attempt to regain the initiative, even though it doesn't have quality, if it has quantity, personnel, and if it's able to refill formations and create additional units by that time, that's certainly a concern. Of course, all sorts of things can happen with a mobilized army in the winter, but I, I think one thing that's a bit erroneous is the notion they're going to deploy all these personnel in Ukraine. I don't think that's the Russia plan. I think they're going to deploy some percentage of these personnel into Ukraine. Um, they're going to likely fill many of the depleted units, trying to spend more time training them up. They've had to throw a lot of personnel without training on the front line and with pretty varying levels of equipment. Um, I suspect they'll try to rationalize that effort over time and then have a sizable amount of personnel in the military left over for rotation so they can rotate units out, start pulling units off the line and trying to fill them with mobilized manpower and essentially uh, fixing one of the biggest challenges their military's had, which is they've just been exhausting forces and depleting them with no capacity to rotate units out and to replace losses. Is any of that going to work? I obviously have no idea. I'm just saying that it, they introduced uncertainty. And, and I think that uh, so I'd be, I'd be a bit cautious as always. And it happened from the very beginning in high view mobilization, just because sometimes it's easier, it's easier to be frank and say that, you know, I don't know how it's going to turn out. You, you might say it's contingent. Yeah, right. And, and here's the thing. I think that there's, there's some areas where the, uh, uh, the, the public narrative doesn't always help. Like I actually don't think it helps Ukraine to have a complacency narrative 
regarding the war and how you mean the narrative that is being promoted in some corners that they're about to win this and the the folks can come home for christmas type of thing right yeah i actually think that's deeply unhelpful because i think that a lot of the uh, support for ukraine hinges on people's understanding they'll have to be sustained they'll probably have to be sustained well into next year right and there's you know it's it's already not going to be a short war like that's very clear like the, well, by historical standards, it's already quite a long war. Right. It's already a long war. It's too late to have a short war. It's going to be a long war. That's very visible. The question is how long of a war it's going to be. And so Ukraine's going to need economic support and it's going to need military support. And so I think some of the folks have kind of parlayed the narrative that Ukraine is winning into Ukraine's already won. It's not the case. You know, one of the things that I think a lot of people have not appreciated is how both sides are managing around some major problems that they encounter, right? For example, the Russians have been targeting the Ukrainian electric grid for the last uh, couple of weeks um, with some success, taking down power in Kiev periodically and, and the rest of the country, but the Ukrainians are managing. And the, the reverse is true as well, that Russians, after the Kerch Bridge attack uh, that severely impacted logistics, have been able to work around it. They've been using ferries. They, they today announced that they've been uh, using seven ferries, five of which can transport rail cars, others can transport um, uh, trucks, and they've also been sending tru- trucks down through the land corridor from Rostov. Um, so both sides are finding ways to work around the problems that they encounter, um, and uh, you know, oftentimes sort of the cheerleading that you encounter on social media and elsewhere of, oh my God, you know, one side or the other achieved a big success, that means it's, it's game over, uh, is underestimating the capacity of people to find creative solutions. Yeah, Ukraine's a pretty resilient country, right? It has a lot of resources. And Russia has considerable capacity and latent power, right? So, you know, I always bore folks with my view that these kind of wars come down to attrition. And uh, the side that's able to reconstitute better is the side that is able to prevail over time. And what that essentially means is that, you know, you go from uh, highs and lows tracking the war week to week, but you understand that none of the blows are, are likely to be necessarily knockout blows, right? That it's, it's them in aggregate, and it's what's happening in aggregate that makes the difference. Although you can have cascade effects, right? You could have a military that's routing that where uh, the defeat's sort of infectious, right? That's possible. It's always possible. But it's not actually that likely, to be perfectly honest, right? Like these expectations of collapse on one side or the other have so far not, not proven true. If, if you look at the power grid situation, so, you know, a lot of Ukrainian cities are dark and they're conserving electricity. In fact, I was on a number of cities that I'd known in, in my life and visited before, and I'd never seen them as pitch black, right? Um, and a lot of that was to conserve electricity because the Russian attacks on, on the Ukrainian power grid, well, Ukrainian civilian authorities are obviously able to fix these things, but it's clear that the Russian attacks are meant to slowly degrade and fragment that power grid. And I mean, I don't know, I'm not an expert uh, on these subjects, but I, I can see growing concern heading into the winter if Russia intensifies these attacks and if it's able to receive a sizable shipment of Iranian missiles, what the next iteration of some of these attacks might look like. So that's, that's all in the area of uh, where you see Russia trying to change its approach and working the sustainability side of the war, right? Like trying to target Ukrainian infrastructure, the Ukrainian economy, and the key things that Ukraine would need in order to potentially make it to the winter. And also trying to uh, target the economy in the sense that preventing the, the sense of return to normalcy, right? Try to prevent the return of investment and other things to Ukraine. Well, and we saw that this week um, or this weekend with the cancellation of the grain deal that the Russia pulled out of. Um, I think a lot of people misinterpreted that news because uh, I actually did a podcast on this in August that the Ukrainian grain is not critical to world grain supplies, that the agricultural situation is actually not that bad. Uh, there's mostly logistical and supply chain issues related to distribution of grain. But the one thing that is clear is that 
uh, grain is really important to Ukraine, right? To the agricultural industry, to their economy. And by shutting that off, you may not necessarily be causing global famine, as some people are rushing to project, but you uh, will create additional pressures on Ukraine heading into the winter. Uh, and, um, you know, if you're a Ukrainian farmer that has not been able to sell your grain for last year, are you more likely to spend your efforts trying to plant more, um, uh, particularly knowing that the storage uh, silos may be full as well and you won't be able to harvest it and store it anywhere. I mean, those are the types of things that Russia is now trying to focus on with their blackmail uh, over the Ukrainian economy, right? Sure. And look, even if it doesn't lead to famines, uh, although disruption supply chains can't, right, just because the grain is out there doesn't mean it can get to the markets where it needs to go, it can lead to inflation of prices, right? What what happens, I think, often is that investors looking at commodities will often react to these things, and it can lead to to a re-spike in prices. So yeah, Because of speculation, yes. Speculation, yeah. So grain is available, but poor countries which need to buy it may have a higher, much higher price of getting it. Um, and, and that's, by the way, what's been the issue since the beginning of the war. It's not that there's not been grain, but the prices due to speculation are actually hoarding by a number of countries. China has been hoarding actually for a few years. India has been preventing exports. That's what's driven prices up, and that's why poor countries can't afford it. Well, I mean, I'm glad, I'm glad I feel like I've got it. I'm going to keep my job, uh, day job as a military analyst. <laughs> But, uh, but I'm glad I can always be, <laughs> I can be an intellectual tourist in commodity markets. <laughs> a little bit of a lesson for you there, Mike. Yeah. But, uh, uh, but, but uh, one thing I want to ask you is uh, you went on this trip with uh, Konrad Muzika, who is uh, an expert on the Belarusian military, right? And he's been looking carefully at the exercises that the Belarusians have been conducting with great tempo. Um, what's your feeling about what's happening on that front is Belarus about to enter this war? Is this all a show? What's your gut feeling? So I, I've been quite skeptical that Belarus has a role to play in this war other than providing material support to the Russian war effort. And I haven't seen much in terms of the Russian deployment in Belarus that really gave me cause for concern. Several thousand mobilized personnel to train there because there's not enough capacity to train in Russia. Not much in the way of heavy equipment. Um, a fairly stable Russian force presence, and even though it's increased since these deployments, it hasn't amounted to a tremendous amount of anything. So, uh, that said, I came back from Ukraine with a better appreciation that this is an area to follow. That Belarusian forces have been training and drilling all year, and intensity and operational tempo that probably haven't been seen in a while. Uh, I don't make much of the Belarusian forces, but you know what? That could just be what I call ignorance bias, which is your bias is born of the fact that you don't actually know much about a specific, a very narrow band topic. And so you like have strong opinions um, for lack of s- specific knowledge. But I, I would say it's an area to watch maybe a few months from now. I think there is Ukrainian concern about a vector from Belarus if... The size of the Russian military deployment there goes substantially, and if there's heavy equipment deployed alongside it, right, that is, you know, tanks, artillery, and, and such, and uh, if you see probably real force generation from the Belarusian military as well alongside. Uh, and it's, it's also something that I think is a question mark maybe some months from now, right? Because Russia deploys larger amounts of mobilized personnel there, newer units, essentially units that they've created from uh, this added manpower. Yes, I still think the probability of a renewed Russian attack from Belarus is quite low. That's sort of where I am. Uh, Do you think in part because the Ukrainians have done a lot to fortify that front line and it will be much, much harder for them than it was even back in February and March? Yeah, I think, I think it's a combination of, first, the geography is very poor. Um, just for, for any kind of large-scale operation from Belarus into Ukraine, most of that geography is quite poor. It's just not favorable, that kind of operation. If you don't believe... We all remember the convoy on one, uh, you know, a two-lane road to Kiev, right? Hard to resupply, hard to do logistics sure. there. 
Why? Because of forests and marshes. If you don't believe me, just recall what happened when Russia attempted to do this back in uh, late February. It's, it, the geography is not very good uh, for that kind of operation. Second, Ukrainians have probably blown all the bridges and mined everything they could get their hands on, right? And they likely have some reserve of forces in the north uh, against, against that course of action. But, you know, the, it, it's always a concern. And the next target just may not be the capital. I think the capital might not be necessarily the area to look at. So it's, it's worth watching. Basically, I, I came back, at least I came back from this trip, taking a bit more seriously than I was, uh, but still not thinking that this is a high probability event. What about using Belarus as a platform for airstrikes against Western Ukraine, against Kiev, you know, sending those Iranian drones right from the border, um, maybe short-range ballistic missiles that they might get from Iran as well? Um, what do you think of that potential? I mean, I think it's very possible. Um, I think most of the strikes have come into Kiev have come from the north and east. And I'm, I'd be... I'd be surprised if Russia didn't deploy Iranian SRBMs in that in that area. Uh, I, SRBM, short-range ballistic yeah, missiles. Yeah, sorry, short-range ballistic missiles, right? The ones that they're supposedly getting, according to a number of news articles that I've seen. And, and, and I think there's credibility to those news articles, right? I also think over time, Russia's going to try the online, localized license production of Shahab's 136s, right? And they're going to try to see if they can develop, you know, produce their own localized versions of these. So it's... And they're really cheap drones, right? They, as long as they can get some of the chips for them, which, by the way, a lot of people are making fun of the fact that Russians are stealing washing machines uh, from Ukraine. Um, they're doing this not because there are no washing machines in Russia, but because the washing machines have some chips like STM32 that are actually really, really helpful in all sorts of sensors, including military sensors. Um, so, so you can literally take the chip off the washing machine and plug it into military hardware one for one. So um, that's some of the things that um, they're doing using e-waste to compensate for the um, semiconductor uh, ban that's in effect, although even that ban we're now seeing is starting to um, show some weaknesses in terms of supplies of semiconductors coming in from China and elsewhere are yeah. growing. Yeah, I was going to say, have you been tracking the percentage increase of Chinese exports of semiconductor to Russia? We have, yes. And it it looks like it's, I can't remember exactly, it looks like it increased something like 200%. Maybe I've made that up. It is going up for sure. We'll, we'll release some data on that. Um, some of it is defective. Some of it is brokers in China that are grabbing, you know, wherever they can get a hand, their hands on and reselling in Russia at a huge profit. Uh, but nevertheless, it, it's, it's absolutely a way that the Russians are... Uh, able to to compensate. What, what I would say is the way I think about export controls and chips and access to these kind of components, from my point of view, is that export controls don't block really access to this technology. They slow down access and they make it much more expensive, and they also force the the target party to have to re- to have to purchase less reliable uh, technology. Well, it's also about scale, right? So you may be able to get enough, uh, which by the way, you don't need that many for military usage, right? You're not going to use thousands of chips and a missile, but um, in order to build up your civilian industrial production, it's absolutely going to hurt you in a major way. Sure, sure. But this is a question about military applications. And what I think you typically find is that export controls are incredibly damaging to the economy, but militaries try to find ways to work around them. And they're in perfect ways. Like they definitely will have a significant effect on Russian procurement. The other, the other way I would suggest to look at it is really the Iranian approach. I think I think that's what Russia is doing. I think Russia is studying the uh, the Iranian model, and very likely what they will try to do over time is look at their current weapon system designs and the chips that they have access to, then look at what they're able to get by working around export controls. And then begin redesigning all these systems based on the chips and components that they can get their hands on. That's right. And and it's actually not that difficult. There's a lot of standardization in this industry that's occurred over the last two decades. And um, some chips are exactly the same. Some chips you can easily substitute from one to the other. So um, it is absolutely an issue.
So, Mike, uh, you spent quite a bit of time with both senior Ukraine military leadership as well as um, rank and file. How do you think the morale is right now? I mean, we're heading to the winter. We talked about, you know, the terror tactics that the Russians are using to hit the civilian infrastructure, um, in some cases hit uh, civilians themselves. Um, is this having the reverse of, uh, effect where the Ukrainians are getting more and more hardened as a result? So there's two questions there. One about military morale and public morale. On the military side, I think Ukrainian morale is very high. They're winning. They expect to keep winning. They feel, I think, reasonably well-resourced. I, I think that they have pretty good leadership. It's not an easy fight. I think sometimes it's a bit caricaturish, the way this is discussed online. And it's rather fitful in places. But on the whole... Where it's never easy, right? Yeah, for sure. But just to say that on the whole, it, it was... I very clearly got the impression of being around the military that had very high spirits, uh, that... that had a good sense of mission and what they were fighting for. And, you know, morale is often very local and contextualized, too. How well supplied you are, your perception of the correlation of forces, expectations of support, and what have you. Also, what kind of commander you think you have. Right, right. So, so it matters, and it can vary a bit from front to front. People often have a general morale, like they think maybe Ukrainian morale is at a 9 and Russian morale is at a 3. But that's, you know, these are sort of, that's not how morale really works on the battlefield. Morale in Svatova Luhansk might be a bit different than morale, you know, by Vukhudar, somewhere else further, further southwest. So it's not quite the same. Um, on the public side, yeah, I don't think Russian strikes are a, a really dunting Ukrainian morale. First of all, you see a lot of people generally going about their lives, despite these air raids and sirens. In many cases, not reacting to them all that much. In Kiev. Yeah, in Kiev and uh, you know, in other places too. Second, I of course it's problematic, but I think bombardment in general typically only serves to build resolve, especially if you can't if you can't follow it up with any with real military uh, success. So I I think that that's not really what Russians are going for anyway. It's a mistaken notion that the Russian campaign is designed to hurt Ukraine morale. It's not the case. They are targeting very specific parts of critical infrastructure, electricity, water. They're going after Ukraine's functionality as a state. Right? And yes, in some areas, you clearly see they are bombarding Ukrainian cities. You know, one to Mykolaiv. Mykolaiv gets barraged on a regular basis. Uh, it's basically a, a near, front, near front line city. Uh, but but there, there, there is a very visible method to to the Russian uh, to the Russian approach. I just don't know that's necessarily going to do anything for them. So, Mike, while you were in Ukraine, uh, at the very same time, I was also in Europe, uh, a little bit south of the front lines in France. Uh, so I wasn't necessarily dodging bullets. But well, we all uh, have our struggles, Dmitry. <laughs> yes, but I was uh, at a conference, speaking at a, a geopolitical conference, where I was asked the question of how is this war going to end? And obviously, no one has a crystal ball. And uh, it's impossible to predict, but I spent quite a bit of time thinking about that question while I was there. And, you know, what strikes me about the mobilization and particularly the annexations that, uh, that um, uh, Putin undertook last month in September is that it was really a burning of the boats. There is no turning back from that for him. He is... Uh, he had the option to end this war, right, uh, when he saw the Kharkiv offensive falling and the, the failure, of course, of the first phase of the war with the, with the failure to take Kiev. But he chose not to do that. He chose to escalate. He chose to escalate quite massively in terms of risking public opinion in Russia with this mobilization that's not popular and annexing territory that he doesn't even fully control is, in fact, in process of gradually losing. But that tells me that he's all in on this conflict, that he t took a war that was essentially a war of choice for him into an existential conflict, not for Russia, but for his own regime, and that as long as he's in power, he's going to continue to prosecute this conflict. So when I think about how this war ends, I, I see sort of three alternatives, three possibilities, I should say, 
One is that you actually have a coup of some sort that takes place in Moscow or he dies a natural death and, and there's a natural opportunity for whoever comes next to potentially reevaluate the situation, even though it may not happen instantaneously. Um, second one is, is what you talked about, which is the uh, support from the West and particularly from the U.S. that is providing most of the military aid is going to dwindle and uh, that can happen due to a uh, change of politics here in this country, new president that is not interested perhaps in sending aid to Ukraine or congressional action or whatever. Um, but that's going to put enormous pressure on the Ukrainians, right, because they're not going to have their ammunition uh, to continue fighting. And the third situation, which is related, where we may have an interest in supporting Ukraine, but we may not be able to do so because we ourselves may get into a conflict elsewhere, like, for example, over Taiwan with China and all the resources that we would otherwise be sending to Ukraine would now be pre- uh, uh, mostly, mostly going to, to, to the front in Asia. Um, what, what's your take on those three possibilities, kind of regime change in Moscow, change of government here in the U.S. that makes us less interested in supporting Ukraine, and, and then uh, potential conflict elsewhere, like in um, Indo-Pacific, that would um, uh, change the nature of our support as well. Do you see other possibilities that are likely here? Sure. I mean, I think to some extent you're right to focus on the political because wars are political acts and, and they and the ultimate end is a matters of political decision. However, there's a couple other there's a couple other options I consider. First, this war is really being driven by the military situation and operations on the ground, first and foremost, right? Because they they essentially are dictating the, the fortunes and the prospects of the two states. Second, and, and what I mean by that is Ukraine can actually retake substantial amounts of territory. And then it can force, put Russia to a choice over, you know, a, a catastrophic defeat of, and an inability to achieve any political objectives or a negotiation on Ukrainian terms. Yes, wars typically do in the negotiations. Even if one side loses, there's a negotiation. I mean, you know, the loser decides when the war is over. They have to concede, okay? That's the reality of it. And concession is a negotiation, right? And it's, it's very rare that you're going to get something like an unconditional surrender, right? People have false expectations in this regard. We actually have an example of this during World War I on the Russian front when the Bolshevik, Bolsheviks, once they took power, uh, were negotiating with the Germans, didn't like the deal and decided to just walk away and presume that the war would just end. And the Germans said, okay, we're going to keep going and take more territory. And the Bolsheviks suddenly realized, wait a second, we yeah. have to take this deal. And now it's even worse than we originally expected. Yes, the Bolsheviks policy was no war and no peace. And what they didn't realize is that that would just meant losing the war more and then having to sign the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which was quite worse than the initial offer. I think that was their first foreign policy lesson on the, on the, the realities of life. So that's, uh, that's not, a, it's not a winning strategy. Um, second, okay, it's a question about sustainability of the war. And uh, to what extent, from my point of view, not just military assistance to Ukraine can be sustained, but economic assistance too. And where I think the war is right now is there are folks who call for negotiations, but I think that in order to have negotiations of, with any prospect of success, a couple of things have to be true. One, there has to be a relative military stalemate on the ground, which there is not. Ukraine is winning. So I don't really understand why people are, some people are calling for negotiations. And to be clear, no one in the Ukrainian side is calling for negotiations. No. This is people in the West. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Second, uh, either side or both have to be willing to revise their minimal war aims. But Vladimir Putin just worked very hard to sever his ability to revise his minimal war aims by going through with annexation. Right? So what could be the basis of the negotiation? The only thing that right now you could get is an operational pause or a ceasefire, which would strongly favor Russia because it would allow them to reconstitute forces due to mobilization. And it would only put them in a much better position and favor them. And then they will continue prosecuting the war. It's very clear. And the Ukrainians clearly understand that. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. That's why, that's why they, are, they are puzzled for the calls for negotiation. They're puzzled for the calls for negotiation when they're winning. And, and I have to tell you, look, I'm not saying that nobody should be exploring behind the scenes and there shouldn't be contacts behind the scenes between Ukrainians, Russians, and whatnot to talk about the possible outlines 
of uh, of any kind of agreement. But right now, I I just I. I fully understand the Ukrainian position. From a very practical standpoint, just objectively looking at it, I 100% agree, right? And the to me, the question is not even necessarily how to sense. What I'm thinking about is, does this war end, whatever you think of as an ending, in a way that uh, leaves a stable, lasting situation where Ukraine has the territory that it is politically satisfied with and believes it can deter Russia from future aggression. And that last piece is very important because they don't want the war to end only to restart a few years later, right? That's right. That's right. Or and and here you've you've uh, you've you've gotten just a bit ahead of me, but um, I think I think uh, I think great minds think alike, and so do ours. Um, or does this war simply end in a way that ensures there will be another war? It's quite a few conflicts end in a way that almost ensures that. Neither side is satisfied with the ending. They have irreconcilable, minimal political war aims, and they are simply using whatever you think the ending is to reconstitute forces for for future conflict. Or does it end in a way that basically you have another war? You know, analogies are very imperfect, but you have sort of an India-Pakistan situation or something like that, uh, where uh, the ending is really just just a ceasefire and a prelude to a continuation war. And I think either of those, to be frank, I think either of those could be true. Um, you know, I was asked in Kiev, you know, whether or not Ukraine's goals are, are, are realistic. And, you know, my view is that basically everything is possible. The question is, what's probabilistic? And my answer is, it unfortunately, it very much depends, right? It depends on performance on the battlefield. It depends on sustainability of external support. It depends on how long the war goes. Time, time to some extent, is a factor, and the longer the, war, the longer we can foresee the war going, the less predictable certain things become further out, right? Uh, in general, right now, though, like I said, I feel like Ukraine is winning morale is quite high on their side. I think the biggest questions Ukrainians typically have are about uh, political will here and sustainability of support. Well, and th- this is why I think that both from Putin's perspective um, and, and to some extent even from the Ukraine perspective, both sides are in it for the long haul. And Putin himself may be looking at least until 2024, 2025, U.S. presidential elections. Will that indicate a change of policy uh, towards uh, support for Ukraine? So um, I don't see him I don't see him ending this war anytime soon. It sounds like your dog very much agrees with me on that. Front. Yeah, yeah, my, it's 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 getting about dinner time. My dog is starting to have his own his own military analysis he wants to contribute. <laughs> Isn't it contingent? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, one last point here, uh, question. Uh, the, the people that you're referring to that are pushing for negotiations um, often bring up the point, uh, sort of the, the main reason for pushing the negotiation is this nuclear threat. Um, and now we're seeing radiological threat. My own take on this is that the, the likelihood of using nuclear weapon has actually gone down dramatically in the last couple of weeks because you see the Russians rhetorically walking back this quite clearly. You've seen them making statements that we've never actually threatened nuclear weapons, even though that's clearly contrary to Putin's own statements. But they're saying this in the UN. Putin is saying this and, and, and others as well. But what's interesting now is in last week, you've had this really concerted effort to play up this dirty bomb scenario that Ukraine supposedly is going to launch a dirty bomb. And it wasn't just rhetorically. Um, it was really uh, Shoigu um, going through the effort, uh, and Putin said that he ordered him to do so, to call up Secretary of Defense Austin, Secretaries of Defense in France and UK. You had Gerasimov um, uh, following up with his counterparts uh, the next day. You had activity in the UN related to this. So it wasn't just them throwing something out there, but putting quite a bit of effort from very senior officials to push that narrative that Ukraine may use a dirty bomb. And I wonder if this is sort of a, a walk back of the nuclear blackmail in one way, but uh, to, in a different way, really put on the table that maybe there's going to be a radiological device used potentially to kind of 
um, you know, if they do end up withdrawing from her song, you can try to contaminate maybe a square in her song or something with a radiological bomb. You can't really kill many people with it except through a use of a conventional explosive, but you can contaminate it for a little while. It can get cleaned up, of course. So it's not a, it's not, it's, it's not going to be, of course, anything like a nuclear weapon itself, but kind of play up the terrorism angle. What, what's your take on that? All right, so. I I'd probably have a slightly different read in that I thought that the risk of nuclear escalation has been low throughout. I didn't see Russia marching at all towards nuclear escalation. I saw no evidence of nobody speaking to changes in Russian force posture or anything like that to indicate it. But clearly, uh, Putin has been obliquely threatening it. He, he has, and the question is why. And typically, he has done this when he's wanted to deter the United States from something. Or if you wanted U.S. to shape kind of Ukrainian thinking, I think the reason they had been doing it is twofold. First, probably they're afraid that as Ukraine was clearly winning after the Kharkiv offensive, there would be a host of calls saying, just give the Ukrainians all the other weapons they asked for and they can finish the job, which there were. And they wanted to deter the United States from doing that. And, and they're not effective, by the way. They're not effective, I think, in, in uh, interwar deterrence, escalation management. In, in, in that approach and leveraging that potential threat. Secondarily, I think they do hope that if they raise this threat of escalation, then uh, the West will, Western countries on which Ukraine depends will try to restrain Ukraine and throttle its offensive. And the reason why is because they're desperate for an operational pause. I think Russian military is very vulnerable heading into the winter. And I think to some extent they're quite desperate. And why not try? And I think that's where the radiological uh, dispersal device argument came out. I think that was an attempt to signal that Russia may conduct a false flag attack, right? Not basically blame it on Ukraine and then have a legitimate excuse for nuclear escalation to kind of show the United States how Russia might do this and, and, and make the threat seem more real, even though I don't think the risk of nuclear escalation right now has gone up for a very particular reason. They've chosen to go with mobilization. Uh, they actually have mobilized a, a large number of personnel. I think Russia's political leadership is going to see what mobilization can do for them over the course of a number of months before they consider escalation. And that, that approach, basically that strategy, is yet to play itself out. I do think, and here I suspect we agree, that after announcing mobilization and wartime measures and annexing this territory... Putin has committed himself and his regime to such an extent that if everything fails, if mobilization doesn't deliver, and if Russia's military faces a real cascade failure next year, that the risk of nuclear escalation now when we look out more long-term is quite higher than what it was before. However, however yeah. we may quantify that. But you know, I would caveat it that they still have to think that it's going to get them something. And if they're convinced that it's going to make the position only worse, um, the probability may still be low, and, and obviously the administration and others are going to try to do everything in their power to make that case. Um, but, you know, I, I actually disagree with you, Mike, because I don't buy this idea that they're going to do the false flag dirty bomb attack only to have a reason to use a nuclear bomb. Because, again, like, a dirty bomb is not, it's just a conventional explosive that's going to spread some radioactivity uh, in a very small area. You know, to retaliate against that, even if you can convince someone, uh, and very clearly they won't be able to convince uh, the majority of, of, of the West, at least, that this is truly Ukraine. But to, to use that as an excuse to use a nuclear weapon just doesn't seem to me very plausible. Well, why not? Because it has no other value. What would be the other utility of it? Well, I think the vindictiveness of, you know, if we can't have her song, you can't have it either. At least one small square of her song where you contaminate it uh, with the radioactive materials. It's profoundly practical. Radiological dispersal devices actually don't have that significant of an effect, especially in a large area like her song. It's not even remotely anything like a nuclear weapon, no, no, no. even a low-yield nuclear weapon. That, that's right. So, so you, you're probably talking about one town square that you can contaminate. You can clean it up, too, by the way. It's, uh, not, it's not impossible. Yeah, most of the damage actually often from these types of devices is from the, is from the economic fallout and the political reaction to it, even though it may not, it, even though in practice it may not have such an effect in terms of 
the threat to the health of the population, people are not going to go anywhere near what they perceive to be a contaminated area. But the actual effect of, of a radiological dispersal device, I'm, I'm sorry, it's, yeah. not that, it's not that impressive. Well, you just made the point for me that if you can convince the Ukrainians that Kherson is now radioactive and there's not going to be a push to repopulate it, that may be a victory for Putin, where if he's going to relent and actually leave the city... Uh, then he's going to try to convince the population not to go back in, right? Well, boy, I, I hate to be the leader who annexed an entire territory whose regional capital is named Kherson, who I've just used a radiological dispersal device against. I mean, that's just going to... That's some pretzel logic right there, but... <laughs> well, uh, I mean, how is this different from taking Mariupol by destroying all of it, right? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, look, I'm, I'm just saying... I'm just being honest with you. I'm just saying that I, I thought that part of the reason they were talking about us was just first to stick things at the wall to see how the U.S. might react to it, right? Just, to, just out of curiosity to see how the U.S. would react to the proposition. I mean, this was a very concerted yes. effort. Yes. Multiple calls from Shoigu yes. Gerasimov, who presumably have other things to do than just throw shit at the wall, right? Yeah, it was. And, and the question is what they hope to get out. And I think my sense, my impression was that they, they were hoping to signal that there was the real risk of this kind of escalation from their side, either as a false flag attack or maybe the way you think of it, whichever. Let's, let's put them both on, on the table. And, and the question is, okay, so what? So what should the United States do about it, right? What did they want, right? And to me, the answer is straightforward. They clearly want the United States to be restrained in the extent to which it arms Ukraine and to perhaps try to get Ukraine to back off so that Russia has more of an operational yeah. pause. But, but the dirty bomb does not make any sense as a tool of restraint because the United States is not going to care a whole lot except to double down on our efforts to sanctions Russia and, and make them more of a pariah state in response to a dirty bomb scenario that barely kills anyone. Yeah, but Russia's really bad at gaming the United States and Western countries. They're quite bad in some cases. In, its, in, its, in expectations of what certain types of signaling will achieve. Like they often they often elect courses of action that are pretty counterproductive in terms of their aims, and and I think the answer for that is and I've this has been my conclusion at least after some years in the field is that um, Russian elites are can be quite reckless in terms of risk taking in some cases, but are woefully ignorant of decision making processes in the United States and the West, and often mirror image, but actually have a pretty low level of understanding of both Western societies and Western polities and decision-making processes here. On that note, we're going to have to end it there. Mike, uh, always a pleasure. Great to get your insights directly from Ukraine. And uh, thanks for joining us again. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me back. Thanks for having me back.